turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, anti-Semitism in the nation takes a bizarre and ugly turn, this time in Oakland, California. There's not been beheadings of babies and raping. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. We'll talk about it with Hans von Spakovsky of Heritage. They are supporting a terrorist police state that resembles Nazi Germany. And Pete Peterson of Pepperdine. I think there's what I would call a a new ideological form of anti-Semitism that is uniquely at home on many college campuses. We'll also make a deliberate effort to step back and wait wait for the advent of the Christ child. All of us can stand to learn to wait and to yearn for the return of Jesus. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from the Pacific Northwest and my home station of KPDQ in Portland. I'm also live in Seattle on 800 AM, The Word. I invite you to catch my program on kpdq.com. Thanks for joining us. We're going to begin in Oakland, California, where on Monday this week, The city council voted unanimously to call for a permanent ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. In one sense, it's no surprise that a city governed by the hard left concerned itself with issues far beyond the city, its state, and even the nation. But what generated the most revealing comments was the effort made by Councilman Dan Kalb to condemn what Hamas did. That effort, by the way, was rejected six to two. What we got was a chilling look into where a sizable portion of our nation stands today. There's not been beheadings of babies and rapings. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. Calling Hamas a terrorist organization is ridiculous, racist, and plays into genocidal propaganda that is flooding our media and that we should be doing everything possible to combat. I support the right of Palestinians to resist occupation, including through Hamas, the armed wing of the unified Palestinian resistance. As an Arab, asking with this context to condemn Hamas is very anti-Arab racist. The notion that this was a massacre of Jews is a fabricated narrative. Many of those killed on October 7th, including children, were killed by the IDF. An amendment condemning Hamas is bald propaganda meant to... To hear them complain about Hamas violence is like listening to a wife beater complain when his wife finally stands up and fights back. Question. Did anyone else notice that those who oppose this resolution are old white supremacists? There's been a lot of atrocity propaganda ranging from claims of beheaded babies to mass rape. Hamas is not a terrorist organization just because the U.S. and Israel um, deems it so. Hamas is a resistance organization that is fighting for the liberation of Palestinian people and their land. The rhetoric we're hearing in media, on university campuses, on the street and in various chambers of government must be understood for what it is. Anti-Semitism. Hatred of the Jews. It's been called the world's oldest hatred. Sadly, that hatred is something of a canary in a coal mine. Hatred for the Jews portends other vile hatreds. When we see what's happening in our institutions of higher learning, 
we shouldn't be surprised. I turned to Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation. Well, it is shocking uh, to hear some of the rhetoric, particularly on some of our more elite college campuses, but you point out that it shouldn't be altogether surprising given the Marxist socialist training camps that these uh, university campuses in some cases have become. Yeah, that's unfortunately true. Even the law schools are uh, bad when it comes to that. And what's amazing about this is that, you know, all these protesters out there, not only are they supporting as you described, a brutal attack that killed uh, men, women, children, and babies, but they are supporting a terrorist police state that resembles Nazi Germany. And if folks think I'm exaggerating, all you got to do is pull up a 2020 report by our own State Department about how Hamas basically turned Gaza into a police state. They arrest and kill anyone who opposes them. In fact, the description when you read it from the State Department report, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like Germany in 1939. And the reason that's relevant is that a lot of people don't know this, but in the 1930s, there were these organizations formed in the U.S. called the German American Bund, B-U-N-D, which, which uh, translated means federation. These were clubs of ethnic Germans who had immigrated to the U.S., similar to these uh, uh, ethnic Palestinians um, who have organized these groups on college campuses. And they supported Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. They were based on anti-Semitism. And in 1939, they actually held a meeting, a big rally at Madison Square Gardens in New York that 20,000 people attended. And, you know, it wasn't exactly a secret uh, who Adolf Hitler was at that time, the way he was running Germany, and yet they were coming out supporting him. That is remarkably similar to what's going on right now with these supporters of Hamas in the United States. You know, you made reference to this State Department report that came out, was it last year, I think? I followed yeah. this fairly closely, and what I read there was was shocking to me, the uh, the extent to which Hamas is oppressing its own people. And I think oppressing is, isn't even a strong enough word violently opposing and subjugating its own people for its own purposes. I think about some of the Hamas leaders who live in Gutter and other places who are living in the lap of luxury while the Palestinian people are suffering um, gravely. This is not a picture that is being painted very clearly in many places. No, it, it's not. And I mean, I don't see how you can read this report and yet go out and support Hamas and the attacks it has. And you know, what makes this even worse and it's no secret what Hamas has done in this latest attack because its fighters were wearing body cams showing them engaging in this, this brutal killings of, of civilians. And yet you have protesters out there in their support. You had people at the White House uh, doing the same thing. They are supporting an organization which controls Gaza, which was designated as a terrorist organization a long time ago by our own State Department. It may have taken a lot for parents and families to wake up, but it just might be happening. Pete Peterson, our friend at the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, was a guest on KSKY in Dallas, Fort Worth. Sitting in for Mark Davis is Paul Gleiser. The good that may have come from uh, the Hamas attack on Israel is to shine a bright light uh, to so that nobody can miss what has become of uh, our university campuses, as we have seen 
the violent protests and the virulently anti-Semitic statements coming from faculty at some of our elite universities. What say you on that? Well, I think you're right, Paul. We got our first sense of this during COVID, where I think a lot of American parents, once their child's classrooms, college classrooms were brought into the living room, they they learned some things about what was being taught in their kids' colleges and universities that uh, obviously shocked them uh, because of the ideological content. These past few weeks and, and months now, I think has also, again, taught Americans in new ways about how ideological America's college campuses have become. And in that, I, I think there's what I would call a, a new ideological form of anti-Semitism that is uniquely at home on many college campuses, one that combines the anti-Semitism that we've known uh, has been around for millennia. But on many of these campuses, this ideological approach to the world, which sees really all engagements, whether wars or uh, interpersonal communications, through the very simplistic lens of oppressed and oppressor, that lens has now been placed on the Israel Hamas war, and in that, terrorists can be seen as oppressed, and people who are keeping hostages uh, can be seen as oppressed. And so this this new ideological form of anti-Semitism is something that really uh, bears watching, responding to, and criticizing. You are, your, as I understand from reading your CV, you are all about advancing the future of conservatism. Let me tell you what scares conservatives like me. The left has taken absolute control of the permanent federal bureaucracy and most of the permanent bureaucracies at state and local levels. It controls the commanding heights of the culture and entertainment, theater, and the arts, it controls the news media. The left controls or has a very, very strong position, if not controlled, depending on the locality, <clears throat> of K-12 through education. Certainly, we just talked about higher education. And to an increasing degree, the C-suites at, at our major iconic American corporations. The right. left, left has insinuated itself into all of these places. How does that get fixed? Well, I think for the first time we're seeing Americans, both conservatives and even non-conservatives, people in the center and even the center left uh, are being, you know, we're seeing a number, uh, just to focus on colleges and universities for a second, we're seeing a bunch of these donors to major Ivy League institutions, people who probably never voted for a Republican in their life, pulling their donations and saying that they're never going to give to their alma mater again. And I am seeing, at least again, in colleges and universities, you know, uh, south of where you are, down at the University of Texas, they've launched a brand new college of civic thought called Civitas, where the state legislature, Republicans and red state legislatures are finally waking up to the fact that they control higher education budgets in their state. And so you're seeing this in Florida with Ron DeSantis. He's launched a new uh, center at the University of Florida called the Hamilton Center. You're seeing this at the University of Tennessee, where they have a new civics institute there at their flagship uh, state university campus, University of North Carolina and Ohio State. You know, it's taken a lot to push conservatives and people even in the center to realize how far left 
colleges and universities have gotten. But I, I am seeing a, a response and one that's encouraging. But it took us years to get into this mess, and it's going to take us years to get us back out. But we need to be committed to it. I've got about a minute left. I want to shift to another part of the world. I want to throw this out to you, this thesis. We are, by dent of the relaxation of sanctions with respect to Iran and by the Biden administration energy policy with respect to the war in Ukraine, we are financing both sides of both conflicts. What say you? Well, I couldn't agree more on both counts. I continue to see especially the engagement with Iran and and the belief that we're going to negotiate them away from nuclear weapons, the monies that we have given them to really essentially be uh, funding the terrorism that we're seeing throughout the Middle East and around the world. And, And certainly with Russia as well, that's also a difficult situation uh, there because they've obviously developed a much deeper relationship with China. But you're right to say that the engagement with these countries, the financial ties that we have developed with them at the expense of our own energy production here in the United States has really brought and encouraged the terrorism and the wars that we're seeing around the world. Coming up, Embracing Advent. It's a time in which we look forward to the coming of Jesus. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The Thanksgiving holiday is well behind us, as is, at least, to some degree, the madness of Black Friday. And chances are your homes are beginning to look a lot like Christmas. But what, may I ask, about your heart? You and I can start now to prepare him room, to make room for him in our hearts. I hope Timothy Paul Jones of Southern Seminary whets your appetite for Advent. He was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 in Pittsburgh. Can you talk to us about your perspective of what really is going on in Advent, what we're about to enter into? Well, Advent, we need to first think about just even what the word itself means. The word just means coming. It's from the Latin word for coming. And so it's a time in which we look forward to the coming of Jesus. We learn to wait and to wait patiently for the coming of Jesus. And so that's one of those things. It's hard to market waiting. And so it's hard for us to kind of get that sometimes. (laughs) Waiting is not very marketable. And yet what's going on in this is that we are celebrating waiting. We are celebrating patience. And to me, it is in some ways the most countercultural of all the elements of the church year, because if there's anything our culture tells us you don't have to do, it's wait. And yet this says it is not merely that we're waiting for Christ to come, but that our waiting is good and our waiting is meaningful. That's what Advent is supposed to help us do and to think about. Fabulous. So we are waiting for the arrival of the child Jesus to come into this world. But why is it, do you think, that we have seen somehow sort of gleaned over this Advent season, we sort of jump into the Christmas season. Has commercialism taken over and we as believers have just sort of jumped along with that? 
also think it's partly that, but I think it's because in our fallen human nature, the fact is that we don't want to wait. We just don't want to in this. And, uh, and, and so we leap forward to simply celebrating Christmas, which of course is its own beautiful and wonderful thing. It's not to downplay that at all. And we just bypass it. We, and, and so because of that, we forget, we jump around it. And, and that time of what I think Advent could be for us today in our culture, who we have everything so instantly, could it be a time for us, if we were to truly celebrate it, of in different times of our day, in different times of our life, say there's something I'm going to do that I'm just going to breathe and slow down and be patient and be intentionally patient. That may be something as as simple as taking a walk with your child and not trying to rush things along. It may be something as simple as, as choosing to, to do something in a way that takes longer and just to slow down and calm down in that time. And in that time, remember and think about what it is to wait for Jesus to come and to yearn for Jesus to come. I think that yearning for Jesus to come, um, I think, is really important for us to recognize that we've gotten so comfortable in so many ways. And I think that's the other reason we leap over this, is we can get so comfortable and forget to yearn for Jesus to come. And I, I hope that if there's one thing we've been reminded of, it's that we do long for, we do want in our souls a world where all things are made right and new. But it's easy to leap forward to the, to the celebration and to forget to yearn for Jesus to return. That's really good, Timothy. Now, Advent is not necessarily about killing time, isn't it? You're saying that Advent is something that we intentionally need to pass through. And if we're going to pass through it, then we should use those resources to the, to the best effect. So throughout the Advent season, Timothy, are, are you doing something differently? Are you praying differently? Are you worshiping differently, thinking differently than you would, you know, during the regular season of the year? I think one of the things our family does is we try to just kind of slow down, calm down in the evenings a little bit more during this time and, and use that time. We do something called the Jesse tree. You can look that sure. up online. It's a good way for your family to celebrate this. And we, we sit down and just color these Jesse tree decorations with colored pencils. Just even that is this slowing down in the evening and saying we're not going to rush. We're going to take some time to be together, to just be present and to do something silly, color this each night together. Um, th that's something you can do in that something in which you are slowing down, calming down, and waiting. And to look for those spaces in your life when you do have to wait, when you do have those layovers, and think, what can I do, maybe not just in Advent, but in any time, to actually deploy those in a meaningful way, not by having to be productive, but by rather calming down in the presence of God and rejoicing in that and let that awaken a yearning for I'm waiting for a flight right now. I'm waiting for this or that right now, but there will come a day when Jesus is coming and I am most of all waiting for that. Fabulous. What about um, uh, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Catholics, you know, um, they, they sort of like, you know, ha had a better understanding or at least, at least a more theologically robust celebration of the Advent season. Um, can you talk about that? You know, why maybe Presbyterians or Baptists are a little slow to respond to a traditional viewpoint of Advent and why we can get or how we can get better at focusing on that? 
think those of us in the Reformed and free church traditions, we're a little suspicious of certain things because of the ways, in certain ways, that they were misused um, up into the Reformation and yeah. things like that. So we're just suspicious. There's a suspicion there. That suspicion isn't necessarily bad, but we also, it doesn't mean that we need to reject everything that may come from these particular seasons. Uh, one of the things I do tell people is the actual contemporary uh, way that we celebrate Advent with the four candles and everything like that, that's actually a Lutheran thing from the early 19th century. It comes from more from that tradition than anything else. There was a, a guy, and his name was uh, Johann Wichern, and he ran this orphanage, and he was trying to find a way for the children in the orphanage to count down to Christmas, and he set up 24 candles. Um, it's what he did, but the big candles were the Sundays, and, uh, and so he actually would do that, and that's where our contemporary version of this comes from. And so if people are maybe concerned about something from Catholicism or something like that, um, don't be, because this is actually more of a Lutheran thing than anything else. But the fact is, all of us, no matter what religious tradition we come from, all of us can stand to learn to wait and to yearn for the return of Jesus. And ultimately, it's not about the candles. It's not about Advent. It's about disciplining our souls to long for Jesus and be able to be patient and to wait well. That's what it's ultimately about. And so some church, one church may decide not to call it that or not to do it quite that way. Okay, that's fine. But figure out ways that you can celebrate and learn to wait well in Christ and trust in him. Well, that's fabulous. So uh, as a pastor, someone who, who writes well and deeply, what are you thinking about? What are you reading differently during the Advent season? Do you look at scripture passages a different way? Do you delve into something deeper? Is it a daily devotional? What's that look like for your Advent tools? You know, one of the things for me is I try to find something that I'm going to read slowly and deliberately. And uh, for example, for me, uh, right now, the, the one thing that I'm, I'm reading um, right now is a book by Hannah Anderson called Turning of Days. Oh. Um, it goes through the year, through the seasons of the year, and it's much more contemplative and it's a slow read and a meditative read. So I'll try to do something like that, as well as with my family, as I mentioned earlier, to try to do something where Together, we are doing something just each night to slow down for a little bit and not to have to feel like we have to be entertained, but to slow down together as a family and do so in a way that is worshipful and prayerful in what we're doing. And so that's the things that it's not something huge, something where you need to go out and buy some massive thing or something like that, or one yeah. certain magical object. It's simply being deliberate about something very simple in what you're doing. Coming up. We Three Kings. Extra biblical writings began to circulate about these mystical wise men, uh, which were fantastical fairy tales. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That passage in Matthew chapter 2, the Christmas story, has generated all sorts of speculation and inspired all sorts of Christmas lore. Dwight Longenecker is the author of The Mystery of the Magi, the quest to identify the three wise men. He was a guest on my program. You have challenged us to consider, first of all, what the scriptures actually say, what they don't say, and to look at other sources to help us better understand who these wise men, if you will, uh, who they were. What sparked this uh, interest for you in clarifying what, uh, what actually happened? Well, you know, I was asked to write an article about the origin of the wise men. And if you look into that, the usual research will say they were from a cast of wizards and, and shamans from, from ancient Persia, uh, if they existed at all. But an awful lot of the Bible scholars uh, don't think the whole thing is a fairy tale. So I, I sort of went back and said, well, I'm going to look at this in more detail. And what got me started was the prophecies in Isaiah, which say that um, the kings from Sheba and Edom and Selah will come to the Messiah. So I said, where was Edom and Selah and Sheba? And it's in the Arabian Peninsula. So I thought, okay, let's see who was there at the time of Jesus' birth. And that opened up a whole new area of discovery, which was really fascinating. Mm. Well, it is fascinating because, again, I think we think we know because that's how uh, the story has been handed down from generation to generation, despite the fact that the scriptures say some very specific things and leave some of the things we've embraced out. In fact, you make the point that some of what we have attached to that part of the story isn't biblical at all. Its origins come from other sources altogether. Yes, Magi's story, more than any other story in the, in the Bible, and, and uh, has been embroidered and added to uh, with lots of um, elaboration over, over 2,000 years of storytelling. And an awful lot of what we accept as the typical story that we all would tell at Christmas and see in the Christmas play of three wise men who came from Africa, Asia, and India, who followed a, a magical star step-by-step on a long desert journey. None of that's actually in the Bible. Uh, and while I sort of take those legends apart, I do actually show that Matthew's simple telling of the tale is remarkably accurate to the politics and the geography and, and the um, context that we know at the time of Jesus' birth. So while I do take apart all the legends, and I explain where the legends came from, um, they, they originated, began to originate in, in the third century uh, in Syria and in Armenia and in Persia, where the church was very influenced by Gnosticism and by Zoroastrianism. And these influences came in, and extra-biblical writings began to circulate about these mystical wise men, uh, which were fantastical fairy tales. Uh, But these extra writings began to influence the tradition, which then came into what we understand uh, in the European tradition, and it continued to develop right through the Middle Ages and beyond. Now, were the Magi initially seeking the Messiah? Uh, Were they responding to Messianic prophecies? Or were they on a diplomatic mission uh, to the court of Herod the Great? I I propose that they were actually on a a diplomatic mission from the court of Aratus IV in in neighboring Nabatea to the court of Herod, and I explain why. But I also explain how these wise men would have been attuned to the Jewish scriptures. They would have known the Old Testament. They would have known Isaiah. And the anticipation of a Messiah figure was actually, it's, it's amazing, it was widespread not just amongst the Jews, but all over the ancient world. Um, there are tracings of prophecies of a Messiah figure in Egypt, in Persia, in Greece, and in Roman literature. Uh, and so 
Yes, they were looking for a messiah. They were looking for a messiah figure, but they were also on a diplomatic mission. Uh, and so it's not really either or. Now, the song that I was going to sing tomorrow, uh, the opening line is, We Three Kings. We have <laughs> decided that there were three of them. Where does that numeric reference come from, and what's more likely to have been the case? Well, first of all, they're first uh, seen as being kings by the first church fathers, Tertullian and Origen, writing in around, I believe it, their dates are around the 2nd century. And they took that because of the prophecies in Isaiah, which said that the kings will come from Edom and Selah. And therefore, they concluded that these men were kings. In fact, I don't believe they were kings, but they certainly had a royal connection in as much as I believe that they were diplomats coming from the court of uh, Aratus and coming to another king. So there was a royal connection, even though they were coming from a king, even though they may not have been kings themselves. And the number three, uh, very early on, the writers and the preachers and, and, and the theologians in the church began to say there must have been three of them because of the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. However, the early traditions differ. In some of the legends and stories about the wise men, there are four. In, in I think it's a Coptic manuscript, there are 12, and another uh, ancient uh, Christian Arthur's too. So, you know, the number is not stated in Matthew's Gospel. Coming up, a song that shaped the world and the man behind it. The thing that turned him was a great storm in the Atlantic where he almost lost his life. And he felt that being saved from the wreck of the ship that almost went down, being saved from that was the Lord showing him his grace. When the Christian outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like, super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. There are few classic Christian hymns that are as ubiquitous as Amazing Grace. I love that hymn. Well, that recording we just heard comes from the great Aretha Franklin, and it still has resonance across cultures, across classes, and in many contexts. 
This year marks 250 years since John Newton penned this classic. James Walvin tells the story in his new book, Amazing Grace, a cultural history of the beloved hymn. He was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. James, what can account for a song that has so much power um, over generations and over different cultures? It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, can you think of another hymn that's had such a global impact? Um, It's a complicated story, and it comes in waves, and it takes off particularly after um, 1970, that Judy Collins version. But it it goes deeper than that. I think uh, for for religious people, the words have a fantastic significance. And I think for African-Americans, particularly the the, the third verse, people who've gone through hardship and have come out the other end. I mean, uh, people recognize this not merely as a kind of religious um, motif, but it actually has a kind of humane, global sense to it, so that even people who don't believe can find some kind of comfort in the words. And that's quite in addition to the remarkable kind of uh, haunting tune that we all know. And uh, one of the great uh, successes commercially uh, is the hymn played by pipers, uh, where there are no words attached at all. And that's sold in its millions. So it's a combination of the music and particularly for people who have got religious inclination, particularly the words. The words mean something for their faith and for the way they think of the world and the way they look to the future. Yes. James, talk to us about the author of the hymn. He himself, um, not of exactly uh, the purity strain, lived Mm -hmm. a very difficult life, Uh, a fascinating story, but uh, he found solace in the, the writing of these words. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, is an extraordinary figure. I mean, he had been a slave captain. He'd been a slave trader on the coast of West Africa, and he'd shipped enslaved Africans into the Americas. He'd delivered a cargo to Charleston, um, South Carolina, Um, and he brutalized the Africans, as did all slave traders. He was cruel to them. And yet he saw the light eventually. He turned. He realized that this was a great abomination and a great sin. And yet... He had to hedge his bets because he had done some terrible things that he didn't really want to talk about. But what you need to remember about John Newton, who turned to become um, a preacher and a hymn writer, and we remember him to this day for that, is that he wasn't unusual. I mean, there were tens of thousands of people on both sides of the Atlantic, 17th and 18th century, who saw nothing in Congress, nothing contradictory between being a slave owner and being deeply Christian, deeply religious. I mean, it's one of the great puzzles of, of young students find it very, very hard to get their head around that you could be uh, a Christian and go about such ungodly business. So John Newton opens up a whole series of very interesting discussions and debates about about slavery, about the Western world, about how decent people did godless things. Mm. So what accounted for his turning around? He became a devout man. He, he was brought up in a very devout home. His mother was very devout in London. And uh, she bought, she went to various nonconformist dissenting churches in London. She loved hymn singing, which is what he grew up learning hymns of Isaac Watt. And uh, so he was in, he had that sort of deep 
deeper education, really, in, in worship, and drifted into a seafaring life and the violence that that involved. Um, but he was always interested in theology. He was a tremendous reader of books. Uh, he bought books wherever he landed at sea. Uh, he read them. He, he became a master of the Bible. And he, he engaged with theology in a way that very few people did who weren't trained to be theologians. So, but the thing that turned him was a great storm in the Atlantic where he almost lost his life. And he felt that being saved from the wreck of the ship that was, almost went down, being saved from that was the Lord showing him his grace, that uh, you didn't have to prove yourself. If you had grace, it was there for the taking. Yes. What about Amazing Grace? Talk about the sweep of the different versions. Judy Collins made that extraordinary recording in 1970 in the midst of the, the great upheavals of the Vietnam War and hoped to bring some kind of peace and tranquility, some kind of balm, and recorded it in that little chapel at Columbia University campus. Um, no one at the recording company realized what was going to happen. It took off like a rocket. It sold millions, and people weren't expecting it. It was promptly recorded a year later by uh, a British regiment that was disbanding and re- re- amalgamating in a different way. Uh, and that sold in millions. And then, after that, uh, Aretha Franklin recorded that quite extraordinary version in Los Angeles for the choir behind her, which one of the great um, gospel performances of all time. So you have three major performances that embedded themselves in popular culture, in not just the United States, but worldwide. But in fact, after that, any number of artists performed it. There is a collection in the Library of Congress, which are, where it did most of the work for this, in the Sam Recording uh, Library. There are over 3,400 recordings, and, and that doesn't include the recordings made in the last 20 years. So there are thousands and thousands of people, of musical groups, have recorded it, you know, from African townships in Kenya, tribes women singing it, right through to concert halls of Western Europe. It's It's entered the kind of uh, pantheon, really, of recorded music. Now, uh, not all of it's uh, very good. I mean, it's very strange. I sat for two weeks listening to hundreds of versions of Amazing Race. Some of them almost drove me crazy. Um, (laughs) But that's just personal taste. I couldn't bear listening to Mantovani, if anyone ever remembers Mantovani. Um, uh, uh, Janis Joplin did one, which is an extraordinary kind of rock version. Um, But the man, the one that I loved, even uh, above the three that we've mentioned, even above Judy Collins, uh, the Pipers, and uh, Rita Franklin, even above them all, the one that I love, because I think he is one of the great men of the 20th century, is Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, certainly in Britain, tend to forget him now, but uh, it's hard to recall what an extraordinary man he was and that wonderful voice. And again, his voice, African-American, takes you back to the extraordinary resonance that, that him has amongst African-Americans mm-hmm. and the, the role he plays in African-American worship. Um, but that's my favorite one of the many hundreds that I've listened to in the course of researching for this book. Coming up? This is a hymn that appeals to an incredible spectrum of humanity, if you will. A few more minutes of Amazing Grace. Stay with us. That saved a soul like me. 
AM radio provides always-on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Amazing grace, how sweet. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. So just how is it that Amazing Grace is as familiar today as it was 100 or even 200 years ago? Well, let's pick up with John and Kathy's conversation with James Walvin, author of Amazing Grace, a cultural history of the beloved hymn. James, one of the lyrical elements of the song that I continue to meditate on uh, over many, many years of uh, hearing recordings and singing it myself and all of that is that it's a combination of things. So I understand why people who are inside the church would appreciate the song, right? But it is interesting and always gives me pause at how people outside the church still resonate with it. And especially because it's a combination of comfort. Um, I once was lost but now I'm found. Um, but it's also inc- like a statement of incredible humility and acknowledgement of sin right off the bat. And that seems to be working in opposition to our current culture. So, I mean, how do you see that? Well, I don't see it in working counter to anything, really. I mean, I think it's, it, this is a hymn that appeals to an incredible spectrum of humanity, if you will. I mean, it is a hymn for humanity, and uh, you can actually find comfort in it, whatever religion and whatever kind of uh, political ethos you, you, you are attached to. Um, if you, the third verse in particular, you know, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Well, you know, this is, those are the words that are, would tug at the heartstrings of anyone who's mm-hmm. been through dangerous toils and snares. And I, I think that's why, for instance, I mean, any number of early American folk singers uh, didn't like singing it because it was religious, they thought. Um, uh, they resisted recording it, but they were persuaded to do so because of its humanity, because it was humane. Um, so, you know, the political left and political right can find something in this hymn that appeals to the way they look at the world or they think about their faith. Uh, add that to a haunting tune, and you have a well, like a unique mix that makes it what it is today. Yes. So 250 years, and James, your scholarship, all this uh, research and listening and Mm -hmm. writing, um, uh, what is the answer to the question of why is it so important? I mean, you've thought about this, written about it, talked about it. Do you have the answer? Um, If I did, I'd be a very wealthy man. Um, (laughs) It's one of the great imponderables, isn't it? How is it? Let me put it the other way around and put your question the other way around. How do we explain a simple hymn written for a group of simple English worshippers 250 years ago is today beloved by tens of millions of people? Uh, the, the answer to that, well, one of the answers is read the book. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, take a moment to sign up for our podcast at ChristianOutlook.com. 
Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. <laughs>